Welcome back to the Ink Sync. I am Annie and I am here with Kaylee. How are you, sweetheart? I am fantastic, Miss Annie. How are you doing, my love? I am doing great. I think we could all use a little bit of a laugh coming up here real soon. There's bad things happening in Texas. Oh, bad. And that's our transition into our first story. Kaylee, our Lord and Savior, Chuck Tingle, is our Lord and Savior. Kaylee, why don't you give us a really quick intro to what is happening in Texas right now, and then I will intro our Lord and Savior, Chuck Tingle. So the governor of Texas has basically sent an open letter to all professional people that are involved in caregiving or child monitoring in the government, so school systems, nurses, etc., essentially telling them to report any sort of support of gender dysphoria in children as child abuse. It will probably happen and do a lot of damage across the board. And so Chuck Tingle, who is the surprise hero of the last decade by a large margin, has taken action. Annie, what action did Dr. Chuck Tingle take? (laughs) PhD in holistic (laughs) Holistic massage. massage. I love him so much. His particular brand of humor as activism is, I don't think he he meant to be an activist when he started out, but he has become an activist and I love him for it. So Chuck Tingle, he writes gay surrealist erotica. Famously, he wrote a book called Pounded in the Butt by My Butt. And also... Pounded in the butt by my book, pounded in the butt uh, by my butt, or something. Like, it's just like this whole series. He wrote such classics as Space Raptor Butt Invasion, (laughs) Bigfoot Pirates Haunt My Balls, Slammed in the Butthole by My Concept of Linear Time, Pounded in the Butt by the Manifestation of My Own Ignorant Climate Change Denial, and others. (laughs) (laughs) Chuck Tingle, we talked about him in an unpublished podcast, which I might end we up publishing. We may have talked I think, about Chuck Tingle. I think we should just have like like a extra of just where we've talked about Chuck Tingle. <laughs> just a super cut of us fangirling yes, over Chuck, Chuck Tingle. Tingle super cut and Ink Sync podcast super cut. Yeah. And for the record, everybody, I do plan on releasing some of the unpublished episodes, especially the main topics, just because I think that we've, we've talked about some fun things. Chuck Tingle was nominated for a Hugo Award by some white nationalists, essentially, who were trying to protest the idea of women of color in sci-fi. And instead of accepting this in the spirit that it was given, Chuck Tingle decided to accept it in the spirit of chaotic good and turned it into a form of protest and decided to troll those trolls right back. And it's been absolutely wonderful. And now he has decided to troll Governor Abbott for this letter. The tweet went out a little while ago and it was Chuck Tingle said, hey, it turns out that Governor Abbott has not bought GovernorAbbott.com. And so Chuck Tingle has created a website at, you can go see it, GovernorAbbott.com, and it provides links to resources supporting trans youth in Texas, things like Equality Texas, the Transgender Law Center, the Trans Lifeline, and the Sylvia Rivera Law Project. You can read it. I won't read the whole thing to you because it's, it's a lot, but it is very funny, and this is chaos and humor used as activism the way, honestly, that it should be. And we have said this before on the podcast, trans children deserve protection. 
kidnapping children out of their homes is bad, which is not something we've had to say on the podcast before. I didn't realize this was something, a stance that we needed to hardline. It seemed obvious, but... Parents supporting their trans children by being there for them and giving them the gender-affirming treatment that they need is healthy parenting. Good job to these parents, even though they are being threatened. I, I wish... I wish them the best, and I hope that they continue to get all of the support that they need. If you listeners are looking for a way to help the trans youth of Texas, again, Quality Texas, the Transgender Law Center, Trans Lifeline, or you can just go to governorabbott.com and see some more of these resources along with some wonderful jokes by our Lord and Savior, Chuck Tingle, who is the patron saint of the Library Army of the Ink Sink. Thank you, sir, for your service. (laughs) The the speed (laughs) and quality of humor... Uh, yes. Cheers, Dr. Tingle. Cheers, Dr. Tingle. I sent Kaylee this article from boingboing.net, which I had never heard of before, but had a very good, <laughs> a very good, like... <laughs> had a good had a good overview of, of things. Yeah, it did. It did. I wanted to start off with that because it made me laugh, and it is a publishing-related thing that always brings me joy, is seeing Chuck Tingle and his wonderful, chaotic optimism. We do have news today, though. We actually do. <laughs> That is news. To be fair, that is actually news because it is, it is. about stuff that has happened, but it, it was a little more lighthearted, perhaps. Yes. I do try to start off these these episodes with something lighthearted because we need that in the world, the world I think. is not great. It's <laughs> yeah, always. We, we are, our super niche publishing industry news podcast is not going to, you know, do great things for the world, but we can at least inject a little bit of giggles and smiles into it and... It's not going to change things, but maybe it'll help us all get through it. We try. We do. So we've got some updates on magazine culture and stuff coming out. We do, yeah. We've gotten a lot of updates, actually. Very interestingly, the publisher Meredith is getting rid of the print runs of several of its magazines, and that includes... Entertainment Weekly and several other magazines. You can see a full list. We will we'll link the sources for you here. But basically, Meredith is going to be full digital imprint. Now. Full digital for yeah. almost all of its magazines. It is going to be keeping. There's a couple. I think that uh, was Better Homes and Gardens, yeah. People, People, and Southern Living, among some others. But they're going to be taking the frequency of those printed magazines down a little bit. And I thought that was incredibly interesting, especially juxtaposed with the news that Condé Nast, which is another magazine publisher which includes Vogue and Vanity Fair and some others, had a gangbusters. So it's first profit in years. So I thought that was very interesting. And I think that it actually <clears throat> probably supports the Meredith decision to stop print publications because those are all digital. Reduce. Yeah, they definitely, and I think it was interesting also that, you know, they're reducing the print publications. And then I think it said like they were going to focus on like increasing the quality of their, what they yeah. are keeping. Which is good. I felt like, honestly, I don't know about you, but for a while there, I was taking a lot of print subscription magazines. This was mostly in in college back when, you know, print subscription magazines were more of a thing. But I felt like this, it's genuinely true, right up close to the end there, some of the quality was going very downhill very quickly. It was basically just getting clickbait in paper form. And so I'm glad that they have decided that what they really want to do is focus on quality for the print publications and then keeping maybe some of the shorter articles, maybe some of the the more online native content online only, which yeah. is probably good. Especially, specifically, there was a lot of ink spilled on 
Entertainment Weekly stopping its print publication. And I get it. There's a lot of nostalgia there. But the entertainment industry moves so quickly. I was going to say, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense as far as it goes. Because, like, you have to. Like, that, it's such a fast-paced, like, news industry. And that's what matters to the people that care about celebrities is what's happening right now, not what's happening five minutes ago. Yeah. And especially when we're talking about print runs. I don't know if you know this, but it takes, like, a week to print a magazine. Oh, yeah. And by that point, you know, something might be totally out of date. So I, I thought this was very, very interesting. And I think that it's actually a probably a good thing that they're doing that. And we, we've talked about sustainability on this podcast before and less printing is better, honestly. And the print publications that they're keeping, Southern Living, Better Homes and Gardens, those are the ones that people want to have physical copies of, I think. Like things about home decor art projects, thing like that. Things where sure. you want to have a physical paper to reference. Like I was just talking about this with Alex. I asked him to cook and I sent him a recipe like lemon garlic butter sauce or something for chicken or something. It was delicious. But anyway, I sent him the recipe and he's just like, I, I don't know the times on anything. It doesn't happen. And I'm like, baby, you just didn't read far enough. He's like, no, I read for like seven paragraphs. And I was like, you didn't go far enough. I'm telling you, the times are there and what you need to do and the temperatures, it's all there. And he's like, no, it's not. No, it's why is there so much prelude that he finally hit after like I told him and I came in there and I like showed him on the phone. He's like, why is it like this? And I'm like, well, welcome to the last 15 years of online recipes. Yeah. I'm glad you've decided to join us. Yep. Um, so seats are over there. Uh-huh. <laughs> Buttons up here that says jump to recipe. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, so the, the point is either you, you pay in the time it takes to get there and the ads you look at or you pay in buying the physical copy of the thing the subscription yes like the subscription or like if you pick up a magazine or you pick up a book and and sometimes you just genuinely want to not have to deal with you just want the book or you want the magazine and people people that want that they're going to want it for a certain like you were just talking about hobbies and recipes and articles that for for content that doesn't necessarily change but you may want to reference like infrequently enough that you wouldn't always be confident in your remembering correctly. Those new sources were from What's New in Publishing and the Wall Street Journal. Actually, going back to What's New in Publishing, they published another article about how newspaper subscribership has decreased massively in the past decade, Mm -hmm. which was followed closely, I think, even in the same day, published by another article from Press Gazette in the UK, where they were able to track how interested you would be in news based on your political party. They can make estimates. It's not like like 100%, yeah. but it's like uh, for sure. I was that I thought was, that was fascinating. I, I agree because it's accurate. I'm definitely fatigued. And so I'm 100% understand. If I feel like I don't need to monitor an active garbage fire, then I, I will take the time for self-healing and reflection and like rest you know, self-care, not constantly paying attention to all the shitty things that are happening in the world if I think that there's something that's not actively about to injure me and the people around me. So, yeah, I mean, that's fair. That's also, so fair. I just noticed that I sent you the wrong link for them. That's okay. I, I, I was <laughs> able to... I found the right I'm so info. sorry. I found the right info. I think that was one of the ones I had to look up separately. My notes maybe. are such chaos to Kaylee sometimes, guys. Mm-hmm. I... Sometimes I'm writing notes for myself when I'm writing these. <laughs> just Sometimes you're just vibing. <laughs> I'm just like, here's a fact and an unrelated link. <laughs> I, like, mm, I don't think that's what she meant to send, but I can, I can find it. Yeah, so I actually don't know what the source for that was. It says what's new in publishing.com, but probably not. <laughs>
Oh, I'm sorry. But staying with newspaper news, we talked a little bit about this a couple episodes ago about some news newsrooms expanding their coverage and adding more reporters on specific beats. The Press Gazette and the AP both announced expansions to the AP newsroom, the Associated Press newsroom, and the Washington Post newsroom. The Washington Post is adding new positions in health and wellness, and the Associated Press is adding an entire desk for climate change, which I felt was a very timely and apt change. I don't know about you, but I maybe I was reading a little bit too far into this. But so the Washington Post created about 70 new newsroom jobs, and several of them are in the health and wellness. Um, You're on TikTok, Mm -hmm. right? I feel like a solid portion of the TikToks, and maybe it's just my for you page. But I think a lot of it is a lot of health and there's just a ton of interest in health and wellness. I know that the Washington Post was one of the early adopters of TikTok. So maybe that was part of it. But I think that there's they're definitely hitting into the zeitgeist with with that big expansion. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's for better and worse. I mean, that's a huge driver of of consumption and traffic these days. And I think those audiences are very engaged. And I think that's what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. And I think the Washington Post is responding responding to to that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, because I, again, I mean, we all kind of like to think of news as like an altruistic. I mean, it is technically a right, which is good, but it, it is a business. Uh, the Washington Post does need to make money. I saw an interesting statement. How boring the news is is likelier on how trustworthy it is. It's like it's a, it's a likely metric for how trustworthy it is potentially. Um, mm-hmm. The more sensational or shocking something is, the more likely it is to be trying to sell you something or to not always. To be fair, but in a lot of cases, that, that definitely tracks. I think that goes back to in that Press Gazette article. So it was interesting. So they're pointing to the different major political leadership party-wise at the time. So, you know, general content consumption surged during our prior presidency. And then it's actually gone down for both parties, but less so for Republicans right now. So, and that's not necessarily something that they would have potentially predicted based on the findings but they definitely have found that they can definitely say like your interest as like say if your if your major party is in place or whatever or a party that you at least nominally trust you're kind of skimming without being laser focused engaged on the news where some of us that's what we were doing just every day trying to figure out what is the truth and what's the bs in this particular day of of headlines so that was such an interesting article. That was actually a, a piece that was done through foreign analysis. Like, I don't know if I would have trusted anything domestically. Yeah, honestly, as I said, it's it came from, like, from the, the Press Gazette, or... the Press Gazette okay. which is a UK yeah. news organization. And they were kind of looking over at the US. It wasn't something that came from the US. And I agree with you that if, if that had come from like a US think tank, I would have kind of side-eyed that data. But since it came from the UK where they don't really have a personal stake yeah, in. Yeah, it's just, it's a little bit easier to take it as a more, a slightly more objective, like, huh, that's interesting. Yeah, that was such a, that's such a cynical thing to say, but it's, it is the world that we live in. It's given us a little bit more of a jaded perspective on news that we kind of come across. And, and in fairness, as a grad student who is you know, being forced to look at the news. I feel like my news consumption hasn't really changed. Yeah, I was going to say, like, <laughs> I'm slightly less, search, like, spy thriller searching for, like, the real truth amongst the lies sort of deal. I'm just like, okay, these are things that are happening. I, I definitely was maybe a little more critical previously, for sure. Yeah. And again, shout out to the Press Gazette for that Throwing really, that really interesting study. 
Moving on to library news. We've been covering this, I think, maybe three or four weeks in a row. The American Association of Publishers has been in a legal fight with the Maryland Public Libraries. The the latest hearing, what they attempted to block the Maryland legislature from implementing a law that would force the publishers to give the libraries their the their books a basically at a at a at a reduced rate reduced from from what they had been paying before a judge did block that order saying that the legislature would have to wait until the the law had been kind of fought out in court before it could implement it so that was a win for the American Association of Publishers that news came to us from Publishers Weekly but i don't know if that will be able to yeah i wrote, in wall. my notes i'm right i'm not sure they can stop this train Missouri and Tennessee have joined the ranks and that brings the number of states attempting to regulate the terms that publishers offer books and library offer books to libraries for up to five five states and it's going to just keep growing and especially i would say especially in the south i think that there is a particular organization that works in the south that does great work in trying to protect consumer rights and tax dollars that are being spent for consumers in this case i think will probably be brought in this point, I think that's pretty straightforward. If you look in the article, they're just like, yeah, we just need to basically figure out a better wording. And then we're going to bring this right back because that's that's what the judge said. That's my thought. Yeah. So for those of you who are are maybe new to this or who, this is you just found us and are like, what's the ink thing? <laughs> um, this is our crusade. Welcome to it. Um, <laughs> Libraries we, are great and they deserve to be better supported. We are very biased. But the news is that basically the American Association of Publishers represents obviously the the publishers of America, uh, specifically the big five, who have been genuinely forcing libraries, public libraries, to pay more for digital books, audiobooks and ebooks than they had been paying for physical books. At this point, five library systems in five states have said, that's not fair. Especially when it's something that they really felt the pain for over the pandemic. Exactly. Yeah. So these libraries are being forced to pay more in a time when Honestly, everyone's cash strapped. This is this is an economic recession. We have been dealing with inflation for months and months and months now, and things aren't great out there. So the libraries went to their various legislatures, their state legislatures, and said, we would love if we could get some regulation to get these publishers to offer us more reasonable rates for these digital books. And the Maryland legislature acted first and implemented a law that planned to force the American Association of Publishers to offer more reasonable rates. That law has just been blocked, as we said. But as Kaylee and I said, I I think the writing's on the wall. I think we're going to be seeing genuine, like, sweeping regulation. If we don't see national regulation, we're going to see it piecemeal. The the rates are almost definitely going to be coming down. And maybe it's just us being biased and kind of hoping for it because we are such supporters of the libraries and this would be so good for them. But I think the fact that, you know, we've had two more within the past few weeks, it's... Well, it's also just, I mean, it's states protecting themselves because this is, again, Agreed, tax yeah. dollars. And the mm-hmm. more the more money that they can shunt elsewhere, they will. So yeah. they, wanna, they want to prevent, because if they can't fix this problem, then the libraries are going to have to ask for more money because this is where content is going. Exactly. And so, like, and I mean, so it's just a matter and of... And those state legislatures being, being told, like, hey, pass this law and pay less money, they're going to be like... Enlightened self-interest. Cool. <laughs> They'll be like, neat, yeah. awesome. Where do we sign? It's, it's exactly what's happening. I feel right like now. that's the argument. I mean, it's I very know. straightforward. So, and also, I again appreciate whoever like reached out to you when we first introduced <laughs> this topic. It was like you should be less biased. Yeah. Annie, Annie has tried. I just want to support that. I have not, and I will continue to not. So, 
Cheers. We're doing our best. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Another update from one of the long-running legal battles that we have been talking about. Sarah Palin sued the New York Times for defamation. We've talked about this before. It was an opinion piece that linked Palin indirectly to a shooting that took place several years ago. She sued the New York Times because she said that that didn't happen. You cannot actually link me to a shooting. And that's so offensive. And that is absolutely defamation. The author of the article apologized. They said it was shoddy reporting and it went to trial. The judge went and said that they wanted to throw the case out after review, but they in kind of an unorthodox move, went ahead and let the jury deliberate and come to a decision on its own because the judge, I think, rightly said that on any appeal, an appeal, an appellate court would want to see the jury's verdict and the Mm -hmm. jury's notes. So I thought that was interesting because what Sarah Palin is uh, mad about was specifically done like in her favor for the appeal that she definitely was going to file. Yeah. So she has said that she's going to appeal. Any appeal will have, will be on technical grounds because some of the jurors did say that they knew that the judge was going to throw the case out and that might have biased their opinions of what should happen. I think that it, it definitely like basically what's going to happen is it's going to appeal on technical grounds for sure. It's going to come back around and the same decision is going to be rendered (laughs) because again, it is, it, it's a very difficult standard to prove because you yeah. have to have malicious intent. You have to prove that. And Legally, you need to have malicious intent in order to convict someone for defamation. Speaking of very nebulous <laughs> yeah. like, like laws, over the hundred-ish years since this has been implemented, it's there are very few convictions on this because it is a difficult standard to meet. Moving on, this is also from the Press Gazette in the UK. Facebook has not been meeting its commitment no. to urban misinformation. What? <laughs> so yes. Kaylee, uh, this is something that I would not have put into this roundup, but you have pushed for adding more social media stuff because it does matter to publishing today. Mm-hmm. I think it does. I think that that it it inform it's a, it's a basically a microcosm of everything that's happening. It's just a little, it's just a much more pressurized, faster version of of the wider occurrences. So why opinion. don't you tell us what's going on here? Guys, so Facebook, they've said that they're doing their best to curb misinformation. And they have, they, an independent uh, group has done an, like a review of the major players in misinformation campaigns. And specifically, like it's just well-defined misinformation. This isn't like somebody's opinion, like well-defined misinformation related to climate change, especially. And Facebook is like, we label things that are reported or whatever that are clearly misinformation. And 90%, 93%, I think may have been the actual figure of the articles and posts, etc., were totally unlabeled. There was no real indication at all that there had been any question for the information that was presented and considering for 100% worse how many people get their news from social media it's it's bad it's real bad so good good on them for getting for getting called out do better it's not hard then to do the bare minimum that you've already said you're gonna do is not hard yeah and I do want to like belabor that point because this is not just Annie and Kaylee sitting on their couch saying that Facebook needs to label climate misinformation facebook committed to labeling climate misinformation and then failed to do it like failed to hit their own standards like you set the standards guys and you set them fairly low and you still missed yeah it's not that they are putting a label and saying you know this fact is disputed it was just when there is climate 
misinformation, or when there is climate information, they were supposed to add a link that says, here's our climate hub with vetted facts. Yeah. And they just weren't doing that. Weren't doing that. So speaking of <laughs> ways to better combat misinformation in social media. Yeah. Annie, you found a very interesting article about how this misinformation spreads. I did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, you did. <laughs> I did. So George Washington, uh, the the university, not the man. Um <laughs> I, I, I cracked myself up. George Washington University did a study to look at how Facebook community connections happen. They were, they were specifically uh, looking into how groups on Facebook have become radicalized. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, Kaylee, but I feel like it's genuinely true. A lot of people's interactions on Facebook today are more governed by groups. People are kind of tuning out their main newsfeed. So people are connecting on these groups and then those groups as a whole, are becoming radicalized. Radicalized, they're kind of crystallizing into these activist groups, which I think, honestly, for better or worse, is what Facebook wanted them to do, is to have these uh, real-world and online-world connections. And so George Washington did a study. So basically, they found that mainstream communities were exposed to misinformation from two different sources. First of all, through alternative health communities, which are promoting positive messaging. So it's kind of promoting misinformation, but couching it in like a, a sunny perspective. And then also these kind of tightly bonded, but under the radar communities where their whole point is to spread their very biased information, which I thought was fascinating because, you know, everybody shares memes on Facebook without even kind of thinking about what the source is or whether that source is biased. And honestly, I, I don't know how much we should all be like source checking our memes. That seems like a lot. But the fact that that is a intentional way that these groups are spreading misinformation, I thought that was fascinating and again concerning <laughs> no i mean like you should you should have to put some minor amounts of effort into being found or finding people or like you you can put minor amounts of effort into not finding or being found by people you shouldn't just be thrown into a situation where like you just fall into a group of strangers you have no information about these people you don't know why specifically you know what 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 about your shared interest how they're approaching it and you just kind of fall together and then you start getting this like soup of ideas that potentially they're starting to slip in stuff that you don't give a shit about pardon me but like or or that is wrong and that you have had you've had no time and you've got like such a, a wild variety of information coming at you that you have no way to vet it like it's yeah, just and I, a but bad I, plan i'm actually of two minds about this like i agree with you 100 percent, but also i think that it's it's almost so as someone who is a fact checker I obviously put a lot of research into a lot of things, but I don't know that it is reasonable to expect people to fact check their social networks, especially for people who have no idea how to even do that. And I, on on that note, I almost commend Facebook for being like, look, we're not gonna expect people to fact check all these things. We're just gonna add like a blanket link to all of this climate information and and and, and direct people to a hub with vetted information. And I... I kind of agree with them that that is maybe not the best choice, but it is the most the most reasonable measured choice for that because it took me a while to learn how to fa like I genuinely had to be taught how to fact check. That was an internship that I did at a newspaper and it took me months to learn how to do. I 
don't know that I expect every single person that I interact with to have those skills, number one, to know how to use them, and then to want to apply them. Most people are just scrolling through social media just... To veg out. Yeah, to disassociate. And that's why not talking to people is the only right answer. (laughs) Bringing it back to being antisocial. You know what, Kaylee? Honestly, I've talked myself into your view. Yeah, don't talk to anyone. Everybody get off social media. I say like, this as a designated chat. introvert in our or extrovert in our group, it's like, true. just to be clear. That's so funny that you're... I just... Look, the like, thing don't is, talk to anyone. I love it, but don't do it. I'll, I'll do it, but I also just approach it. I'm probably not going to like most of the people that I talk to. That's unfortunately how I approach my I wonder if there's there's the scale from introvert to extrovert, but there's got to be like a, a, a scale inside the extroversion, like the cynical extrovert versus like the golden retriever extrovert who just loves everybody versus like someone like you who's just like, oh, I'll talk to you, but I'll hate you. I, I probably won't like you very much, but let's do it. Now that we've thoroughly depressed ourselves about social media, let's go into our favorite section, which is women and minorities killing it in publishing. I sent you both of these articles and you were not able to click on either one of them, Kaylee. So let me tell you what is going on. Please do. (laughs) So Mindy Kaling, who we know and love from The Office, The Mindy Show, and all of her wonderful writing and acting and just genuine joy. She's a, a ray of sunshine and I love her. She is partnering with Amazon on a new imprint. They're calling it a story studio, which I think is a very charming name. It's a little precious. But it is an imprint. Um, She's going to be doing mostly short form prose. So Amazon Studios acquired first look rights for Kaling's forthcoming novel and essay collection. The collaboration is meant to do specifically books published by Kaling from emerging and established voices uh, in late 2022. And that comes from Publishers Weekly. Congrats to Mindy Kaling. That is so cool. Keep on sparkling, girl. Absolutely. Good for her. The other news and minority that we uh, have to talk about, uh, this is from the Poets and Writers magazine. It is about a collective called Lamp Black. Let me read you their description of themselves. That's a good idea. This, this quote comes from Paige Ayana Morris, who helps edit Lamp Black, uh, the organization's magazine. One of the primary goals in, fun- in founding Lamp Black was about the very real material needs of Black writers that I think are often glossed over when we discuss literary lives and literary careers in community. We wanted to find a way to directly support Black writers without that structural gatekeeping. You don't have to be a winner of a fellowship. You don't have to be in an MFA program. End quote. So Lampback was able to raise funds and essentially just give it out to writers of color. And they are also publishing a magazine called Lampback. You can look them up. It is made up of 21 Black writers, mostly alumni from the MFA program at Rutgers University Network. I'm going to go ahead and plug their Twitter account on the show notes as well. So congrats to those guys for getting a full write-up in Poets and Writers. That that's is awesome. super awesome. Now that I fully know everything about it. Yeah. <laughs> Keep on sparkling, everybody. Yeah, that's great. Great job. And now for our favorite section, Kaylee, what are you reading? I'm still reading Gideon the Ninth. I did take a break, but I am returning back to Gideon the Ninth, which it remains very funny. One of the scenes that were tickling me before the most was just Gideon just chipping into her shitty old chest so she can keep her longsword with her and like a little teddy bear. Like that was just so comical to me. That was so cute. She's like, I'm going to take it with me. I may not be able to use it, but... She does. I don't know if you've gotten the part where she does genuinely sleep with it and cuddles with it. <laughs> I, I have not. And that's It's very cute. I 
not surprised though. Like those one of those things like you didn't know but aren't surprised by. <laughs> yeah, right. Annie, what are you reading? Kaylee, I am reading uh, I'm back on my nonfiction game. I am reading a book called Factfulness, which I get what the book is trying to do. So it's trying to be like a you're wrong about the world, like and here's some stats. But I think that it doesn't really take into account that the stats are still quite depressing. Um, it's like, the, the, be optimistic. The world is doing a lot better than you think. There are only one billion children in poverty and starving. And you're like, oh, oh. like, I, I get it. You know, the, the point is, like, things are getting better. And they're much better than they used to be. And here's a line showing that this line just keeps going down and kids keep getting food. And it's super awesome. The infant mortality rate is dropping all over the world. And that's so awesome. But then it's like they they put out stats that are like only 4 million babies died today. And you're like, oh. I've definitely seen posts on the internet that did this better than what you're describing right now. The tone is so strange. And, and only, it's only very so many difficult. babies died, not all of the babies. Yeah, and it's oh, very difficult. Okay. And I understand this person was a a doctor in an underprivileged country, and they had to learn this horrible calculus of economics and healthcare in these places very quickly. And so they have kind of been living with this mindset for a while. But as just like a regular person, I have not. And death in general makes me sad when it's needless and and that doesn't make me optimistic so it's taken me a while to get through this book i've actually been trying to read it for a couple months and just not been getting through it very quickly i think i started reading it in november and we that are sounds in like a rough read that's february fair. now i think i'm more than halfway through it now which is good but it's just it's i'm doing my best with it and it's making me very sad no i mean that's i <laughs> I don't, I do understand. And it's fair because, like, there is a lot of stuff that like, people are depressed about the state of things. And I've seen several posts that are trying to do the same thing. It's just like, these are good things that are happening in the world. These are good things that maybe it's just, it's again, it's easier to sensationalize and focus on the negative. But good things continue to happen. We are making progress in the world. The reason, like, that the bad things are so sensationalized is because they're just happening less, which is yeah. good. Yes. But maybe the tone could have had a little help, it sounds like, in the book that you're reading. Yeah. Perhaps. And this person, my my guess is that their editor was very informed by the fact that this person has a TED Talk and it was a very well-received TED Talk. My guess is that in person, this speaker, it, it comes off a little bit better. I believe and that. And so I, my thought is probably if I were reading it on audiobook, it would be better. But I, I've gone too far in the Kindle version to turn back now, so... <laughs> This is where we're at, oh. but yeah. So I agree with you. It the tone is really my issue with it now. As I'm as I'm speaking about it, I'm realizing. And today we are going to be getting into book banning, why it happens, how it happens. We're also going to be talking a little bit about book banning in the on the other side, which you might not often hear about. So stay tuned for that. We are going to take a quick break and then be right back with our main section. Yeah. Welcome back to the show. We are talking about book banning slash book canceling. So Kaylee, we talked about this a little bit 
in our last episode, we talked about mouse being pulled from a curriculum. People kind of talked about it as a book ban. It wasn't technically a book ban. It was more a book pull. And then on the other end, we talked about the Anne Frank book being pulled mm-hmm. mid-publication, actually, yeah. because of some controversy around the content. So I do want to start us off with some definitions, as, as we are wont to do. When we talk about a book ban, we're not talking about what happened with mouse. What is a book ban, Kaylee? So a book ban is where it is actually genuinely made illegal in some form or fashion by a representative in in an official capacity. So like this county, your state, the federal legislature, for whatever reason, and not, not just in our country, but like in other countries too, like the government in general. So for the most part, you'll see book bans and book ban lists, but they're not actually banned books per se, for the most part controversial books might be a better name but it's not as buzzy and we banned book it's alliterative it rolls off the tongue it's true it's true (laughs) so i mean we've had just classics and stuff like there's just just ever since we've had popular like basically when print became such an easy easy medium to get out to the people when when literacy became more prevalent or was starting to become more prevalent we've just that's where it started i don't like the content in this book because it's given the people ideas and whether whatever those ideas were, there was a problem for somebody. So you've got people that are against, like Uncle Tom's Cabin was protested. I mean, and even at the time, not necessarily as it's being prote- protested now for the approach to the the content creation, but like because it was giving giving people ideas about whatever. Basically, it's been a problem since like popular fiction and pulp fiction became more easily accessible and cheap enough to be consumed by the masses. I do want to talk about when you see a news article talking about book bans, what are we talking about here? Uh, So we've actually talked about this before a a couple times. Again, shout out to Shelf Awareness for keeping on top of this. The American Association of Booksellers? American Booksellers Association. That's the one has been kind of going through this discussion a lot. They've not banned books, but it is a lot of the slippery slope arguments in that arena are being made about banned books. Basically, they walked back some protections for independent booksellers to focus more on supporting marginalized voices. And some people were upset about that because in their minds, books are meant to start conversations and there's a fine line that needs to be walked. And I I think genuinely the Booksellers Association is doing a very good job of walking that fine line. They are choosing to concentrate their resources on supporting and protecting marginalized voices. But it I think that that really brings up the fact that there is kind of a fine line between refusing to carry a book, refusing to promote a book and just repressing a view that you are uncomfortable with. For example, I am often uncomfortable with the idea of slaughtering animals. I was a vegetarian for a very long time. I would still be a vegetarian if my doctor had not forced me to start eating meat. Your body, unfortunately, like it it genuinely rebelled. Like (laughs) this is a whole separate. (laughs) It dragged you down. It did, unfortunately. It wasn't you at all. Ladies and gentlemen, living with IBS is not fun. Anyway, I very much get uncomfortable reading about, for example, the fast food industry, butchers in general, just people killing animals. That stuff makes me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But it would be very silly for me to come out and say, oh, we should never 
have books that discuss this. They're important topics. There are, I mean, like cruelty in the animal industry, you have to talk about like the animal industry. Agreed. And I do want to also add a, another perspective there. If I ran a bookstore, I wouldn't carry those books. Mm-hmm. That would be my choice as a business yes. owner. And I think that that is also part of this fine line that we're talking about. So when we talk about banned books today, I think a lot of people, when they say banned books, they mean either something that's being pushed out of the public school system or something being pushed out of like a quorum of libraries or a, a quorum of bookstores. Mm-hmm. Like if Barnes & Noble refused to carry something, I think people would call that a banned book. What's been happening recently, and we talked about this a little bit in our news section, A lot of Facebook groups have been kind of radicalized and crystallized, especially the parenting groups, to protesting specific content in kids' schools. And schools are kind of a hot-button topic right now anyway. We're, we're, again, recording this in February of 2022. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. We're kind of coming out of it. But now that I say that, there's probably going to be another variant. And we definitely jinxed it. Sorry. Um, But I feel like schools are kind of going through it right now. And... The New York Times did a really good piece where they talked about uh, what's going on in specifically this one school district in Texas, and they had some really good quotes from some teachers. And I wanted to read you one of these from Anne Niss, who is an English teacher in Texas. She says, I've had kids triggered by difficult texts. It is our responsibility to prepare students, though, I I inserted the word though, and emotionally and intellectually with diverse voices. Unquote. Her point is that uncomfortable books, discomfort should not go unexamined. If something makes you uncomfortable, you should think about maybe why. And right, it's true that kids don't like being uncomfortable. No one likes being uncomfortable. I don't like the idea that animals get slaughtered at all because I am just a very sympathetic, snowflakey sort of person. But I also know I've I've examined these feelings and I know why I feel that way and I have I have been forced to deal with because it exists in the world yeah and if it were something where i just had never even thought about it or talked about it or or realized it i think i would be a very different person maybe a less well-rounded person and that's kind of the point that these teachers are making well it's not just that it's just that again focusing on the fact that like parents are being radicalized and in trying to impact the schools the school systems aggressively where do you want people to encounter difficult ideas? Do you want them to encounter them in a space that is at least mildly protected and they're supported and they can work through these ideas? Or do you want them to encounter them when they have no support system and they have no access to a a framework that can help them process and understand and work through maybe their feelings on the topic? Those are your options. It's not a binary, either they're, like if we remove these books, they'll never encounter these things. We're talking about books that, like Mouse, they had bad language and the Holocaust and nude mice. Judy Bloom, very controversial. Is she? Yes. She is one of the most prolific authors on, like, controversial band. The um, American Library Association has a list of books that have been protested and brought up and fought against being included in libraries. It's because she talks about coming of age and there's usually bad language or there's usually some sort of reference to trans- like your body changing or something like that because that's what happens to kids. They're going through puberty. I don't understand why this is such a controversial topic, but 
and that was just baffling to me. Like, it was just so frustrating because this is, she's not like telling them to go do drugs and snort coke or drink or whatever, take a bender and go steal a car. She's just genuinely got characters that are going through these kids that that's her age group are going through and gives them a framework to work through things that they may be going through right now or that they're going to be going through soon or that they've been struggling with. Again, where do you want your kid to encounter these things? Because they're not going to talk to you about everything, even if you have a great relationship. That's just what teenagers do. And that's assuming you have a great relationship that you've managed to, to foster. I sometimes wonder how much of the, the backlash here is just parents that don't know what to do with their kids and they're just like freaking out and just ag- aggressive and combative for that reason. They need the information. They do, and yeah. And they need it from multiple sources so they can figure out how they can, how they want to think or understand or feel about a thing you can't just do something once and then it's over especially for something as huge as becoming a whole person that is what your child is doing they have they are not a person like in in their entirety yet they're still learning what the world is and how they want to be in that world and you have to give them the tools to figure out how to process everything or they're not going it's not going to go well for them that's when i mean that's what we that's bad things happen I agree with you. And on the other end, again, referencing back to something we were talking about last episode about the Anne Frank accuser book, we talk, this is kind of on the other end is uh, not, you know, something being published and then being contested. It's something being contested before or in the middle of getting published. I wanted to bring this up because we've seen a lot of this recently with political memoirs coming out, people trying to talk about what's been going on in politics in the past few years. And in the past few years have been extremely contentious in politics. And you know, the workers of some of these publishing houses are saying, no, I don't want to work on this book. I don't want to be a part of publishing this book. And that is their right as workers mm-hmm. to say, I don't really want to do that. And it's it's the right of the business to say, I don't really want to do that. And, you know, to kind of pass on mm-hmm. it. I sent you this story from The Guardian about a publishing company called Skyhorse, which has been actually kind of going in and getting a lot of attention for picking up some of these political memoirs that have been canceled is a bad word, but been contested on the on the publishing side. Well, I think it's, a, again, a matter of enlightened self-interest more than anything. It's like they can get the money, but also that it seems to be like... Agreed. I think I think the, the person who runs Skyhorse, uh, Tony Lyons, is very much thinking in the realm of Sometimes you need to publish the view that makes you uncomfortable. You need to to talk to the people who you disagree with. You need to hear their side. And and, and this is his way of of doing that. So for better and worse, um, yeah. like for example, and just to be clear, like he's published COVID misinformation. He's also published the reverse of that. It's an interesting dichotomy that he is introducing. And it's not only the material that his company produces, but it is probably the most splashy. Do you have a Kaylee Coda for us? Like if somebody's mad, like if you're mad that your kid is reading something that's uncomfortable, then use that to talk to them about whatever that topic is. Find things that you do, that do express your views on the topic and discuss it with your kid. Don't just start yelling at school administrators and trying to sue a librarian for enacting a, a book policy that they have no control over. Don't try to go against your 12th grade English teacher for your kid because you don't like that they had to read The Grapes of Wrath or 1984 or something because it proves like it's anti-government or whatever. Like bad things happen. People are 
awful sometimes and your kid needs to know that and know how to handle like to at least mildly expect that when they're no longer like around you constantly for protection don't injure yourself fighting an uphill battle that has no point if you find a, a topic that that does move you passion passion can be a good energy source to, to change thank you for listening to the ink sync i am annie have a good one